Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Michael McKee with us wearing many hats this morning. And right now we're going to rapidly digress here uh, to a gentleman like Paul Volcker from New Jersey, Raphael Bostic. What an interesting path out of Harvard and Stanford, really first rate academics and a, a different Fed president, Michael. Indeed. And now uh, president of the Atlanta Federal Reserve, Raphael Bostic. And we uh, welcome you to surveillance this morning. Uh, you're in Atlanta where it's going to be a lot warmer. I looked this morning, Raphael, and it was 37 degrees out on the back lawn of the Jackson Lake Lodge. So in some ways, we're better off. It's not as it's not as beautiful, but in some ways, we're better off. Uh, let me ask you first about the numbers that we just got. 4.2% on the year-over-year headline PCE, 3.6% for the core. Is that out of line at all with what you were anticipating? And does that uh, maybe uh, put more pressure on you to decide you would like to see a sooner taper? Well, Mike, first of all, I'm glad we're not sitting out in 30-degree weather. Uh, that makes for a much less comfortable interview. Uh, you know, and, and for the numbers that came out today, you know, I've, I've been in studio, so I have not had a chance to look at the numbers um, uh, more deeply. But I would say this sort of uh, number is not, a, is not a huge surprise for me. We know that there have been a lot of price pressures, um, and those have continued. Um, I, I heard you guys talking before about the notion of transitory. And you know, when I talk to businesses, what they've told me is that um, this is episodic. They do believe that this is really driven by the pandemic circumstance. Uh, but what it's also become clear is that this episode is gonna last longer than people expected. So um, we're, trying, we're gonna figure out how to incorporate that into our modeling. I would say for me, uh, what I'm seeing is really consistent with the outlook that I had before. Uh, so I'm still comfortable that we're on a good trajectory uh, with the economy, and, and we sh should still see fairly robust growth. Uh, let me put you on the other side of that big mahogany table uh, at the Fed and those who might argue for a delay. Is there an argument there? Because what seems to be happening is a problem on the supply side, and you guys address the demand side. Well, it's certainly true that there are supply side challenges. And, you know, I've, we've all heard many stories about supply chain issues, uh, and trying to get goods to product to meet the robust demand that's out there. Uh, I'm definitely worried about that and thinking about that. Uh, what I would also say, though, is that you know, what we have seen, and, and businesses consistently tell me they are getting having record volumes, uh, the demand is super strong, uh, and so I don't think that pushes in a different direction uh, than the types of things that we're thinking about in terms of removing some of the accommodation. Uh, I think the economy is performing extremely strong, and any weakness that we're going to see is just pulling us off of very high numbers initially. There seems to be a feeling on Wall Street that if you end tapering, and particularly if you do it quickly, that that will remove a support from the equity markets. Uh, the Fed has been contributing to the big rise we have seen in the indexes, and maybe even to inflation with uh, QE purchases. How much do you worry about uh, financial market stability with this uh, switch in policy coming up? Well, you know, I always worry about uh, financial stability. I think it's important that we make sure that our financial system remains strong and resilient so that it can provide the services that are needed for our economy. 
what I do think, though, in terms of our policies is that uh, we're really aimed at two other things. We're looking at maximum employment and stable prices. I think that we're doing uh, pretty well, uh, making good progress in both, which suggests that we should be trying to get our, our, our policies back into a more normal situation. You know, we've been at a very extreme level of accommodation, and I think that the strain of the economy uh, calls for us to uh, pull off of that a little bit and let the economy stand on its own. Uh, we still have a fair amount of, uh, of energy and momentum. I think that uh, we can do our tapering faster than we have in previous episodes because of that momentum. And my expectation is the economy will uh, continue to operate in a strong way. Well, we were talking earlier about whether the inflation impulse that we're seeing now will last longer than you anticipated. Uh, is the idea of getting the taper underway, and uh, you have said get it done fairly quickly, so that you have some freedom to be able to address interest rates if you need to? Well, I, I mean, certainly uh, I think it's important that we move one tool, one lever at a time. Uh, it's much more complicated to communicate uh, what we're trying to accomplish with policy if we're moving interest rates and doing things on asset purchases at the same time. So, you know, getting the asset purchases done is going to be an important thing uh, in terms of the sequencing of our policy. But I do really think about them in very different ways. Um, I think about a lot of the asset purchase impetus coming out of the deep recession that was triggered through the pandemic. Uh, and as the economy has moved further and further away from those, those lows, I think the need for the, that type, that uh, those purchases starts to decline. Uh, and at that point, I think we should move on to other things. Uh, once that's done, I think what I'm going to do is really look at the data and have the data inform me as to how I should be thinking about uh, when we should uh, do liftoff with interest rates. Uh, right now, I have the pro that projected as the end of 2022. But you know, as I always say, a lot's going to happen between now and then, uh, and that will really inform uh, the, the actual decision that we make uh, in terms of uh, when we start to, to move interest rates. Well, when you talk to CEOs in your district or even the mom and pop stores in your district, what are they telling you about how long they think this inflation will last? Well, yeah, I, they actually don't talk about it usually in terms of inflation. Uh, they talk about it in their ability to meet product demand. And so business leaders uh, that I talk to uh, tell me that the supply chain challenges are significant. Uh, what we thought were going to be, or what they thought were going to be short-term challenges are starting to look like they're going to last a bit longer into 2022. Uh, and that has implications for what's going to happen in terms of prices. Uh, but I do think, and I think it's important for everyone to keep this in mind, this is all part of an episode. And uh, so I've, I've moved away from transitory or permanent and really try to talk about this as an episodic uh, a period of inflation. And for me, with a long episode, the thing that I'm going to be most concerned about is whether people start to take the length of the episode as a signal that they need to start doing things fundamentally differently. Because if that's true, then a lot of the relationships that we've seen historically uh, may not hold any longer. And we may need to think about our policies differently. So a lot of the surveys <laughs> that we're going to be doing uh, on inflation expectations yeah. and the like, um, those are going to be the things that uh, will inform uh, what makes the best sense for, for policy moving forward. Rafael, the theme of this conference, the title is Macroeconomic Policy in an Uneven Economy. At this point, do you think that the $120 billion of monthly bond purchases helps even out 
the unequal recovery or do you think it exacerbates at this point, given the recovery in the labor market, some of the uh, inequalities, given the fact that lower rates and uh, better financial conditions tends to help wealthier ind individuals more because of their assets? Well, I, you know, I think of the purchases, uh, the goal is really to make sure that the economy stays robust so that uh, people can get employed. Because if you don't have a job, then you're going to have a higher level of precariousness uh, and that precariousness is, could trigger and translate into uh, significant hardships. And I think, so what I'm trying to weigh is sort of uh, the hardships or the potential for hardships uh, that many at the lower end of the wealth distribution could, could face uh, without a strong economy versus some of the benefits that are going to accrue to those at the top because we have a strong economy. Uh, and for me right now, the precariousness side is, is of more concern uh, be, in, in part because of how the pandemic has played out. We know that uh, in this pandemic, uh, jobs at the lower end of the wage distribution have been hit much harder. And so there is a, an imperative that we make sure our policies are in position so they can come back more quickly. Uh, that is starting to happen now. And, and for me, I, I, I found mm -hmm. it heartening that a lot of those gaps in terms of job losses and, and categories are starting to narrow. And that gives me some comfort that, uh, that the policies have been effective. Uh, Mike McKee, why don't you drop in here for one final question with uh, the good president from Atlanta? <laughs> well, let, let me point out that the good president from Atlanta is one of the voting members of the uh, Open Market Committee this year. So what you say really matters. And I'm wondering, uh, I, I'm th sitting here listening to what you're saying, and I'm thinking of the, how the print headlines are going to say, you know, Bostick joins group of hawks. I'm wondering if this is really hawkish or if it's just time. Um, is there at some point, would anybody notice in terms of market interest rates if you start cutting back on QE purchases? So I actually think that uh, the markets will not respond very strongly to this. Um, the economy is in a very strong way, a strong position. And uh, I think the, the uh, asset purchases at this point have been something of an insurance uh, policy. Uh, I think that we don't need that insurance nearly as much as we have in previous episodes. And because of that, I, I think the markets are going to uh, really absorb this pretty smoothly. And uh, we'll, we'll see right. the economy continue to just roll on. Raphael Bostic, you more than anyone I know inside the Beltway has thought harder and harder about our nation's social policy. Our fabric, your CV out of USC, et cetera, is extraordinary. You talked years ago about trying to get the doors wider in America, having to do with housing and the black experience in America. Where are we right now? Can our institutions, and particularly this Fed, get the doors opened wider? Well, you know, I, I think we're definitely going to try. And let me step back and start by saying, you know, the gaps in home ownership are as large as they've ever been since we've started tracking this. Uh, and that means that there is a, a challenge that we face in terms of uh, families of, of African-American and, and Latino backgrounds uh, getting assets that allow them to accrue wealth. Uh, what I'll tell you is uh, for the Fed, our monetary policy and the policy framework that we announced last <clears throat> year is really designed to make sure that the employment <clears throat> market, the labor markets work better for all. Uh, and we are also advancing a number of other things. We're convening, so we have a racism in the economy series to highlight a number of the barriers and potential solutions. Right. Uh, we're working for solutions in communities to try to make those differences 
uh, to really change how the economy works for people uh, and make sure mm -hmm. that our institutions are well positioned to succeed. So I think there's progress that can be made, uh, and uh, I'm going to work hard with my colleagues to, uh, to push to make that happen. Dr. Bostic, thank you so much for joining us uh, today. What I love about this, folks, is everybody has a different path to their economic excellence. And Michael McKee, it, I, I don't think I've ever said this to see someone of interesting business academics and then took the toughest job in the country. No, not the chairman of the Fed, the president of the University of Delaware. That's a tough job. <laughs> that was a tough job. And uh, Pat Harker just totally bailed on that. To go be <laughs> the president, rescue me. <laughs> president of the Philadelphia Fed. And he joins us now. Thank you very much for joining us, Pat. And uh, as I mentioned to Raphael earlier, we are a lot warmer here in the studio. And I'm sure you are in Philadelphia than we would be on the sure. back lawn at Jackson Lake Lodge, where it was 37 degrees a short time ago. Um, I'm wondering about uh, heat in terms of inflation. We got uh, inflation numbers today. The headline PCE goes up uh, to 4.2% faster than you had anticipated and uh, higher than had been anticipated by the Fed. Does that suggest to you that we might need to see, uh, and I know taper comes first, but that we might need to see interest rates rise sooner than the market has been expecting? First, good morning. Uh, yeah, we're a little warmer, although I do miss uh, the view. <laughs> the view from my 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 office is my home office is a lot different. And uh, go fighting blue hands. Go University <laughs> of Delaware. Uh, so yeah. So on inflation, I mean, clearly it is a concern. Um, the word transitory, I think, has been used probably in some ways too much. Uh, but there are clearly sectors of the economy which are accelerating faster than others. That's always the case. The question in my mind to watch on inflation is, are we seeing spillover from these COVID-infected sectors to the non-COVID-infected sectors? And are expectations becoming unanchored? So far on the latter point, the answer is no, but it is clearly something we need to watch. And what we're hearing from our business contacts is that this may be longer lasting, uh, than we had expected, they had expected. So it is clearly a risk uh, that we have to be cognizant of with respect to policy. Are those people telling you that uh, they are going to have to keep raising prices in order to make up their margins? What I hear from our contacts, business contacts, is they're working very hard not to raise prices. They are seeing some increase in productivity. The good news is we are seeing across the economy and in individual sectors increases in productivity, which helps mitigate some of the challenges they're facing. But it doesn't completely get rid of them. So yeah, they're, they're concerned about this right now. I think generally they're very concerned. One major national home builder I was talking to recently said, you know, these supply chain disruptions we thought were temporary don't look as temporary uh, as we thought. They will eventually solve themselves like appliances. But right now, they're putting in used appliances into new homes and promising to deliver a new appliance because they simply can't get the appliances. In that case, because of chips to a large extent, we think about cars and chips. Well, there are chips in your dishwasher. 
<laughs> and sometimes they don't work in my dishwasher. Uh, <laughs> if if uh, the rest of the Open Market Committee follows your advice and decides to start tapering fairly soon, what kind of message does that send at a time when people are very unsure about the impact of COVID on the economy? Yeah. So Delta is clearly a problem. And the next one, it, it's not just going to be Delta. First and foremost, we've got to get this pandemic under control. And the way to do that is get people vaccinated. This started with a health crisis. It's going to end by solving the health crisis, not by raising rates or lowering rates. So we need to keep that first and foremost, right in the front of our mind. And we need to tell everybody this. So, yeah, I mean, given that, uh, given that this is a health crisis, I think we we need to follow, as our colleagues and Raphael was just on, have said, we really need to follow the data and see how things turn out over the next couple of months. We put these uh, systems in place. We put this accommodation in place because of the health crisis. And we will be able to remove it now because we are slowly, carefully chipping away at the health crisis, but we're not there yet. Uh, we talked a lot about inflation this morning, but what about the labor market? Uh, the yeah. committee in its uh, minutes of the last meeting suggested uh, you'd made progress, but not nearly enough. And even if we get a similar jobs report next Friday to what we had, you're still going to be about six million short. Uh, I, I'm wondering yeah. if you expect to make up that difference uh, very quickly or if the participation rate is going to stay low and that might change your thought about the proper path for policy? So separate two things there. It's a good question. One is uh, the path of policy, but also uh, what is causing this? Uh, what's causing this? It's not a lack of demand. It's clearly not a lack of demand. We see that in the JOLTS data, lots of open jobs. People are still concerned about coming back to work. Uh, people are concerned about getting on transit, say, in a city like Philadelphia, to get to the workplace. People are concerned about going to the restaurant with the Delta variant, et cetera, et cetera. And so, again, until we solve those problems and child care and all the other things holding people back uh, from entering the workforce, that's going to be an issue. Unemployment insurance is rolling off. I mean, the expanded unemployment insurance. We are starting to see some of those early, early results from some states that removed the federal uh, unemployment early. Yeah, you know, it, it, it doesn't seem like that's having a huge impact on getting more people into the labor force. It's these other factors, life, <laughs> I put it in, mm -hmm. as simply as life, right? Taking care of kids, taking care of uh, elderly parents, uh, getting to and from work that's causing this. So what does that mean for policy? If that, if what I just said is true, then adding accommodation or keeping a highly accommodative policy is not going to solve that problem. It's not going to close that gap. It's not a demand problem. It's a supply problem. Well, within that, and Patrick Harker, I think you're best situated of anybody within the Fed. I note that the Philadelphia Fed, with 4 or 5% of the American population sitting on 1% of the land, it's a microcosm of this nation, the manufacturing index back to 1968. Great. What do you hear from the small, the mid, and the large business people of your district? So they're nervous. I mean, I think generally people are nervous and uh, about what the future holds. But that said, they are seeing lots of demand. I mean, our manufacturing contacts, our manufacturing business outlook survey, although it's ticked down a little bit in terms of future activity, uh, 
it's still an expansionary territory. Their biggest problem, and you know this, is getting skilled labor. And by the way, we should put this in context in some of the work we're doing in the Philly Fed. This problem of skilled labor and labor generally was with us before the pandemic hit. The pandemic has just exacerbated the problem. It hasn't created the problem. We still need long-term structural solutions uh, to solving our labor woes. And that's the kind of work we're doing in our community development function at the Philly Fed and really across the Federal Reserve System. Well, at the Philly Fed, you said something that I think is just fascinating, Patrick, that some of the supply side issues that we're seeing in the labor market, the, the frictions there are not solved by monetary policy. This isn't something that holding rates low for a longer period of time or even uh, buying $120 billion of bonds every month is going to solve in its own right. So how do you determine the potential negative ramifications from the ongoing $120 billion of purchases yep. with the lack of uh, influence, frankly, on solving these labor market dynamics. So I have been on record and I continue to be on record that, that I would like to start the tapering sooner rather than later. I'd like to start it sooner rather than later. And I'd like to keep those, keep it as simple as possible. The old engineer and me, I'm trained as an engineer, you know, the old KISS principle, keep it simple, stupid. Let's just start this process. Let's get that over with. And then we can start to think about the Fed funds rate and normalizing the Fed funds rate. We're not there yet. I'm right. still forecasting late 22, probably 23, uh, before we do liftoff. But let's get the tapering process underway. Mike, let's engineer this Jackson Hole right now. Is this a Jackson Hole of complexity or simplicity, as the president speaks of? <laughs> well, it depends on whether you're uh, reading the papers, which are complex, or whether you are <laughs> talking about raising interest rates or uh, starting to taper. Uh, I'm wondering, Pat, if uh, you think that starting to taper is going to have an impact uh, uh, this soon uh, on the whole Fed, the the new framework, uh, the idea that you're waiting. Will people take that the wrong way and think that uh, you're giving up too soon? No, they, they might. But I again, I, I don't think that's a, that's appropriate. Uh, we have achieved our inflation goal, essentially. I mean, it, we're above 2 percent. Again, good news is expectations have not become unanchored. But uh, we are averaging above 2 percent. And keeping this accommodation through tapering there for a long period of time, uh, when it's not solving the labor problem, that's not the problem. Just look at how many jobs are open in the U.S. economy, the jolt data. Uh, I just think it, it's the prudent thing to do to just take this first move and then let's see how things play out before we think about any change in the Fed fund rate. Now, we talked about uh, whether or not the Fed has contributed to inflation by uh, propping up asset prices. Uh, a lot of people have said fiscal policy is contributing to inflation by putting a lot of money into the economy. And now down in Washington, they're debating hundreds of billions more. Uh, are you worried that that, uh, leaving aside the political merits of this, uh, are you worried it could be inflationary? Let's start with what we know almost exists. It's not done yet, but the infrastructure bill. Uh, as an old civil engineer, I'm all for fixing our infrastructure. It's in woeful shape across our economy. We need to fix it. So what's the implication, uh, what impact will that have on the economy? Well, I mean, the evidence I've seen, at least the modeling I've seen, is you know, that trillion dollars will have maybe one, two tenths of a percent impact on GDP. So we're not talking about a huge overall impact. In certain sectors, absolutely, but not overall. My biggest concern right now 
is not that it's going to overstimulate that bill itself is going to overstimulate the economy. Is that where are we going to get the labor, the skilled labor to fix the roads, to do the broadband work and, and so forth? That we need a really intensive effort to get people into the labor force with those skills. Now, the broader issue of the three, three and a half trillion, that is right now, I don't have a fixed opinion on that because really that's a moving target every single day. And it's very hard to model. Uh, such a moving target. All right. Very quickly, Pat, uh, next Thursday, September 2nd, Delaware Blue Hens versus the Black Bears of Maine. Uh, winner? Ooh. Well, I'm always going to go with the Blue Hens. Come on. <laughs> I set <laughs> you up for that. Everyone will be fully vaccinated. <laughs> Patrick Harker, thank you so much. Greatly, greatly appreciate it this morning. The Voice of Philadelphia. This is wonderful, folks, because it's a changeable feast of what the Fed invented, the geography of the nation. And Michael McKee, it's pretty simple to say the culture, the fabric of Philadelphia, radically different than what Kaplan holds court in in Dallas. <laughs> yes, certainly the culture is a little bit different. Uh, Robert Kaplan, much more likely to be wearing cowboy boots than uh, Pat Harker. Robert Kaplan is the president of the Dallas Federal Reserve. And this is, I guess, uh, Rob, a little bit like uh, we're all sitting around the table at uh, the Fed meeting, the uh, Open Market Committee meeting, because each one of you is getting in turn your chance to describe <laughs> the economy. Uh, let's right. let's ask you um, in Dallas, in the in your region, what are CEOs and uh, company officials saying about whether this inflationary spike that we've seen is going to continue because maybe COVID is going to disrupt supply lines even longer? Uh, what they're gonna what they're saying is. The material supply demand balances are going to last longer than people may be expecting. Now, certain material uh, imbalances are going to get resolved, but semiconductors, my contacts are telling me it, it could take much longer to see those imbalances resolved. One of the reasons is a lot of the changes we're making to the economy, electrification of the auto grid, for example, takes a lot of semiconductors. And so we're gonna produce more semiconductors, but demand is growing. So that's the, that's the materials. The, the, the one that uh, I think is gonna be even more persistent is the labor supply demand imbalances and that we've had 3 million retirements since February, 2020. We have a million, a quarter million have people who've left the workforce to be caregivers. You have a fear of infection. And broadly, businesses are becoming uh, resolved to the idea. It's going to be hard to, uh, to uh, attract labor. Uh, it, they're going to pay more. The wage increases are, are certainly for labor welcome. But I think businesses are actively thinking about how to manage their business. And if they're a big business, they're going to use more technology, more scale. Small, mid-sized businesses, the only thing they option they have is to raise prices. Uh, and they're doing that and they're more confident that they can raise prices and have them stick. Well, I'm sure you probably heard Pat Harker just a moment ago talking about if we get this stimulus bill, the infrastructure bill, uh, we could see inflationary impacts because there aren't enough workers. How much uh, do you worry that inflation is going to be embedded in, in these companies' uh, thoughts going forward because they can't find workers? Uh, I think these labor supply demand imbalances will be with us for an extended period. So so do I worry about it? I think I think it's going to be part of our economy, a feature of our economy. And uh, 
I, I think that uh, as a result of that, our, our year end at the Dallas Fed, our year end PCE inflation forecast is 3.8, 3.9%. I could see it firming to even to 4% by the end of the year. We think the extreme moves will moderate, like used car prices. Some of those extreme moves from the reopening will moderate, but we, we think price pressures will broaden uh, because of these some of these persistent imbalances, particularly on labor. So headline for next year, we think right now is in the range of two and a half percent. And I could see us, you know, revising that up versus down as we go through the next few months. So I'm, I'm watching it carefully. And I, we've got a commitment at the Fed to anchoring average inflation at two percent. We're willing to run moderately above. But we've also got a commitment to anchor it and low moderate income communities uh, I'm talking to actively are seeing a greater share of their wallet going to to uh, you know gasoline, food, rents, autos, and they're they're uh, they're they're, uh, they're feeling that those effects. Well, I know you're a 2022 guy for raising interest rates, and you also want to get the taper over with. Is it possible that uh, we see the Fed have to move up? the uh, date of liftoff for the uh, Fed funds rate? Uh, I, I've been very careful to emphasize that decisions on the asset purchases should be separated from decisions on the Fed funds rate. We've got a number of months and into next year to assess how the economy unfolds, how these dynamics unfold. We'll make that judgment next year. I do believe we should start the asset purchases adjustment process soon. Uh, I mean, literally as soon as possible. And I would like to see us move, uh, do that process gradually over, say, eight months. Uh, and I, I think we've got to get started on that. And I think the extent we get moving on that, it may actually give us more flexibility down the road on our decisions on the Fed funds rate. If you're just joining us, Robert Kaplan of the Dallas Fed with us on radio and television worldwide as we celebrate what we do at Bloomberg and all of Bloomberg um, surveillance is economics. Michael McKee leading our coverage in this hour as we go to the speech of the chairman of the Federal Reserve um, System. And we see show you worldwide the geography of this nation from Philadelphia to Kaplan's Dallas and on to Bullard St. Louis as well. Robert Kaplan, good morning uh, to you. You know I bust your chest about Dallas research because you're the only Fed president that actually reads his research. You have a spectacular research piece linking surging home prices into rent inflation. And buried in Jim Dolmas's piece is 6.9% rent increases in 2023. Is your Fed ready for that? Uh, I think low moderate income communities are not ready for that. And they're, they're uh, very cognizant of having to deal with it. And I, I, I think while I think what we're saying, uh, part of our two and a half percent plus forecast for next year is we need to anticipate this appreciation in home prices is going to is going to translate into higher rents uh, down the road. And that's got to be part of our thinking. It's been highly publicized, uh, Rob, that Fed Chair Jay Powell seems to be a little bit more dovish or a little bit more patient when it comes to the taper, when it comes to the rate hiking cycle. Where do you guys disagree most? I mean, where do you see him wrong in his thinking in terms of uh, being patient at a time of rents going up that quickly? 
Well, I actually reframe uh, what you asked slightly. Uh, I think the role of the chair is to encourage a process of debate and disagreement. This is why I thought it was so important to get asset purchases on the table. But his job is to, I believe the chair's job is to encourage debate and disagreement, uh, try to forge a consensus and understand views in order to, uh, to come up with policy and have a good process. And I think Jay Powell does a superb job at that. Are you expecting him to make any kind of announcement today uh, in terms of taper timing? I would not go near commenting on what uh, Jay Powell is going to say in his speech. I, I don't I don't think it'd be appropriate. You for are tough. Kaplan doesn't <laughs> expect that from you. Uh, well, uh, you know, you had to try, right? That was brutal. Bad oh, I'm form. not going anywhere near there. Yeah. All right. Would you would you expect that the Open Market Committee on September 22nd would announce a beginning of taper or that it would come at the next couple of meetings? So uh, right now, uh, I'll, I'll speak to my own process, and that may reflect on what others are doing. Um, when we've seen, we've, I've been talking pre-resurgence, I thought we ought to be moving soon on asset purchases and beginning that process. With the resurgence, we've gone back at the Dallas Fed and redoubled our efforts uh, over the last X number of weeks and intensively over the last 10 days even to look at high frequency data, real time surveys, stepping up, talking to contacts and and what I'm seeing and what I think we're going to see uh, up until the meeting. But I'm going to keep reconfirming this is resiliency. That doesn't mean that you won't see some slowing in, say, the August jobs numbers because the matching process will slow uh, because of fear of infection. But it won't be because of lack of demand for jobs. You might see a little near-term slowing in GDP, but I don't think, I don't think what we're seeing is going to change the outlook. And that's the process I'm going through leading right. up to the meeting. And, and I would guess others are doing the same process. Robert Kaplan, thank you so much. Greatly, greatly appreciate it this morning with the Dallas Fed as well. We have spoken with Harker of Philadelphia. It is rather different in Dallas. And then there's the absolute unique characteristics of St. Louis Fed. If you think of modern economic research, guess what? St. Louis invented it years ago. And they have, Mike, the, the chart service they have. The oh, fax well, service they everybody have. Everybody loves Fred. The only one I know that can actually use the thing, it's so wonderfully complicated, is James Bullard. <laughs> I was using Frazier the other day, which comes from uh, Minnesota, which, uh, I mean, all this historical stuff. Uh, Jim Bullard is the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. And I guess uh, we could ask, have you, have you ever seen anything like this before in the economy? But I kind of know the answer, Jim. This is a unique experience. Uh, you were among the first to say that the Fed should start tapering. And I'm wondering if that's because you are afraid of inflation hanging around and may need to raise rates sooner than the markets anticipate. Yeah, um, I, th I think we do Frazier as well uh, in St. Louis. So just to set the record straight on that one. Um, Oops. Uh, so, yeah, I think... Um, the key word is optionality for 2022. Uh, we want to, or I would like to anyway, taper now and, and get it finished by the end of the first quarter. And then at that point, I think we could assess uh, what's happening in 
the economy with respect to inflation. By that time, we'll have many more jobs reports, and you know, it certainly looks like they'll all be uh, strong to varying degrees. Um, unemployment will uh, tick down with a four-handle uh, at that point, and and then we'll be able to see in the first half of 2022 if inflation is moderating or not. And if it's moderating, then we're, we're in great shape. And if it's not moderating, uh, then we might have to be uh, more aggressive. So I think that optionality uh, has a lot of value right now. Um, I think the purchases uh, don't have much value right now. So um, it seems like the trade-off is just right to me. Uh, let's phase out the purchases and let's uh, give ourselves some breathing room in 2022. Well, as you look over the forecast horizon, do you think that inflation sticks around? Yeah, I, th- I think uh, right now, I'd, sitting here today, I'd say 2.5% or higher in 2022 on core PC inflation. Uh, so we're all, you know, right now we're at 3.5% on core PC inflation. That's the committee's preferred smooth measure of uh, inflation, the one that's enshrined in the SEP, the Summary of Economic Projections. So it looks like we're going to have quite a bit of inflation this year. That 3.5% number measured from one year ago is higher than it's been in 30 years and is enough to bring the average inflation rate, however you want to calculate it, uh, on that measure over any five-year period, either looking back or looking forward up to 2%. So. Um, then in 2022, the question is, how, how fast is inflation going to moderate? Um, if it moderates quickly, then, then we're fine. But if it, if it doesn't moderate, and, and I'm right, and we're 2.5% or higher, then the Fed might have to start to try to put downward pressure on inflation in order to keep it at the right level. Do you worry that interrupts the new framework, the idea that uh, – you could have to raise rates because inflation is higher than you anticipated, but you don't get uh, the unemployment rate down as far as you would like to, or at least in terms of the diverse and inclusive unemployment rates. Now we'd be hitting the new framework exactly. Uh, you know, beautiful monetary policy under what I'm describing, uh, because uh, we would have at that point had uh, inflation above the 2% target for some time. And then uh, inflation on a core PCE basis would be averaging 2% over some kind of five-year uh, window, either backward-looking or, or centered uh, and forward-looking. And uh, so you'd be, you'd be hitting it on that dimension. And then I think on the jobs, you know, you've got to think about not exactly where we are today, but where we're going to be at the end of the taper. The key thing here is when is the taper going to end? And... Uh, uh, it certainly looks like you're going to have a very strong uh, jobs market at that point. I mean, you can make the argument today that this is one of the tightest job markets we've seen uh, in, in recent decades because uh, the unemployment to vacancies ratio has gone down below one. So more than one job opening for every unemployed worker. If you want a broad measure of labor market performance, you can look at the Kansas City Fed's uh, labor market conditions index. That's moved up into positive uh, territory and is headed toward very high numbers, which will be, uh, again, indicating uh, one of the strongest job markets that we've seen in recent decades. So I think, you know, 
all of that corroborates what you're hearing on this show and everywhere across the economy about jobs, which is that uh, firms are having a really tough time hiring. They're offering uh, wage increases. They're offering bonuses. They're offering retention, signing bonuses, retention bonuses. Uh, they have job fairs where no one shows up. Uh, so lots of things uh, seem to be pointing to a very strong jobs market right now. And if you're going to have 6% growth in the U.S. economy over the second half of this year and 4% growth next year, that's just going to improve all that much more. So I think we'll be in great shape in the, in the first half of 2022, but we have to uh, have some optionality there in case inflation doesn't moderate. Well, what are companies telling you about what they're having to pay and how long they think they're going to have to pay it both for input goods and for labor? Is this going to be something that at, at this point they're anticipating a bit of a cycle? Well, one of my top concerns, and, and I've heard it on uh, listening to you guys, is CEOs will come in and they'll say, uh, yeah, my input costs are way up, but we don't think this is a problem. We're going to pass that right on and, and raise prices. And, uh, you know, my labor costs are up, but we're going to pass that on into prices. That sounds like a, a worrisome dynamic to me and one that, you know, we certainly want real wages to go up. But uh, for everyone, uh, we want those to be as high as possible. But um uh, we don't want to get into a cycle where that just feeds through to the inflation process yeah. uh, in, in the economy. Jim Bullard, Tom Keenan, good morning to you. Thrilled to speak to you before hey, Chairman uh, Powell. Jim Bullard, I want to go back five years to two big things of 2016. One of them was Marvin Goodfriend and the uproar over his paper at Jackson Hole, the late Marvin Goodfriend folks of Carnegie Mellon, on zero interest and the negative rates. Well, guess what, Jim Bullard? Goodfriend was right. Negative rates up, 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 up worldwide as well. And also, you may recall in 2016, somebody in St. Louis, Lewis said, forget about a single point outcome. We are going to have the different states of a regime change. Dovetail what happened five years ago and take us out 10 years. Can we get to a constructive different state given the huge negative interest rates worldwide? Yeah, I think uh, after... Uh Professor Goodfriend's paper, uh, central banks around the world did experiment with negative rates, I think with very mixed success. And I think that's why we've tried to avoid that outcome in the U.S. Um, with respect to the regime, I mean, I did switch in 2016 to saying that uh, I thought we were just in a low inflation, low nominal interest rate, low real interest rate environment, uh, slow growth, and that that wasn't going to change. Uh, very readily, and that meant that monetary policy didn't have to be as aggressive as we had previously been. So I was kind of on the dovish side at that point. But now uh, we're coming through this pandemic, um, and policy-wise, it's been a human tragedy, of course, of uh, unimaginable dimensions. But from the economy's point of view, we've played it very well as a nation with the fiscal policy and the monetary policy. And now we're coming out of the pandemic with a very strong economy. And I think it's very possible that we're switching into a high productivity growth uh, regime. And that means uh, somewhat higher interest rates than you'd otherwise uh, have seen. It means uh, faster growth than you otherwise would have seen. 
And uh, uh, I'm hopeful that all of that occurs. The last time we had uh, a, a faster growth, higher productivity growth economy was the late 1990s, yeah. where we boomed for four years and started talking about paying off the entire national debt. Well, and Jim, you're talking about negative. <laughs> that didn't happen. Yeah, that didn't happen. No. <laughs> but Jim, you're talking about negative interest rates and how that's been problematic in certain ways. And certainly in the United States, it wouldn't be as uh, as smooth as it has been in other places for the money market fund and a variety of other reasons. But you've talked about the need to get interest rates up so that we can use that and combat the next downturn, have some ammunition. If we cannot get rates substantially higher, how important, how do you foresee asset purchases factoring into future stimulus? Yeah, they've become a, a standard part of the toolkit, and uh, we used it after the global financial crisis, pioneered uh, by uh, former Chairman Bernanke, and kudos to him for that. And then, uh, you know, when this crisis came along, we went right back to it with uh, considerable success, I would say, in the March-April 2020 period, where we really were staring at a possible depression and a possible financial crisis. And I thought Chair Powell did an uh, excellent job during that time frame in getting us into a policy that avoided the financial crisis that could have occurred on top of uh, uh, the pandemic and uh, put us on a very good footing. It wasn't too long after uh, March, April that financial stress measures came way down from from uh, very high levels and we got back to uh, normality, at least with respect to financial markets. So um, asset purchases are, are part of the toolkit and they're here to stay. But right now, I don't think they're helping us that much and they may be causing harm, uh, especially in housing where uh, we don't want to feed into an incipient uh, housing bubble, we got into a lot of trouble in the mid 2000s with housing. And, and I'm not too anxious to try to, uh, to see that happen again. So um, I think that just the time has come to, to end these purchases and get the committee and the nation uh, some optionality for what we may have to do in 2022. But we're not, uh, we're certainly going to keep sharp control over our uh, our interest rate decisions, uh, we're not going to be on any kind of mechanical path, but we're going to want to assess where we are in the spring of 2022 to see what the what course we want to chart uh, to keep inflation under control uh, uh, from that point forward. Uh, Jim, let me ask you uh, one last question, and that's about how you think the Wall Street folks are going to react to this. Uh, there's been a feeling that you guys are propping up uh, the big gains that we've seen in the indexes and the fact that the bond market has uh, kept rates so low indicates they believe that uh, we're not going to have an inflation problem. If, if you send a message that maybe we will and it's time to stop giving you guys support, are we going to have a problem? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, you, you talk to pretty much everybody in the markets and my sense is that, you know, at some level, the tapering process has already been priced in, maybe not the, all the details around it or exactly uh, exactly how it will unfold. And so there's a little bit more there, but certainly seems like commentators and traders are well aware that uh, there will be a tapering process and, and that it makes sense at this point, uh, given how well the economy 
as Don, this economy is producing more national income than the one uh, that existed before the pandemic. Uh, the pre-pandemic economy didn't have zero interest rates, by the way. Uh, so I think um, I think markets would uh, uh, react, you know, in some broad sense, they'd react well to this because it would mean that uh, the Fed is going to stay in good position to handle uh, all the possibilities that might come. If inflation moderates in 2022, we're in great position for that. And if we get the taper mm -hmm. out of the way, uh, then we'll also be in good position in 2022 if we have to tamp down a little bit on inflation pressure in the economy. Dr. Bullard, thank you so much for joining us today. From St. Louis, Jim Bullard. Right now, Gita Gopinath with us with the International Monetary Fund and their chief economist, their director of research, Maurice Obsfeld, will be on the uh, uh, podium uh, later at Jackson Hole today. Someone else who has held that uh, position over the years. Gita, thank you so much for joining us uh, this morning. Before we get to the affairs of Jackson Hole, uh, Gita, I am required to address uh, a bit outside your remit at the International Monetary Fund and that is what all are watching, which is how the IMF will adapt and adjust to Afghanistan and the Taliban. This has to do with special drawing rights. Explain to our audience the choice set that the managing director and all of you at the IMF have with these unusual events in Afghanistan. Hi, Tom. It's a pleasure to join your show. Now, SDRs are allocated to all the member countries. Now, which countries can actually use the SDRs depends upon whether the government in that country is being recognized by the membership of uh, the IMF. And at this point, with the recent developments that we've seen, which just are heartbreaking, uh, there is no uh, recognition. So at this point, uh, you know, the SDRs will not be available to be used uh, by Afghanistan. If we can look at your panel today with the former vice chairman Alan Blinder and also with Leaper of Virginia as well, it is to me the most interesting event at Jackson Hole. And I'm going to be honest, Gita, it's more interesting than what the chairman's going to say. We live in a time where we've never seen linkages of fiscal and monetary policy. It's literally we're doing MMT. Within your panel, will you people discuss modern monetary theory. Are we doing MMT in 2022? So, so no, I don't believe we are doing MMT. Uh, you know, it's a decade before the COVID crisis was one where everybody was complaining that monetary policy cannot be the only game in town, and that was appropriate. Uh, and then COVID struck and fiscal policy came to town in a big way. So we've seen interaction of the kind that we've never seen before, but it was necessary. It was needed for the kind of challenge the world economy was facing, and it helped prevent a much deeper recession. I mean, our estimate is that the recession would have been three times worse uh, last year had it not been for both fiscal and monetary policy support. Now, that said, we have to be very clear why this is good policy, because ultimately decision-making, central bank decision-making has to be controlled by central bank priority central bank goals. Uh, and so central bank independence has served countries very well. And it makes sense to do quantitative easing and asset purchases as long as you're doing this independently, 
This is not about being pressured by governments to do monetary financing. You're meeting your goals. You're keeping inflation expectations anchored. And that's what the difference is. Gita, this is such a delicate dance. How do you avoid politicizing the central banking community at a time when low interest rates that they're helping uh, continue really is what is allowing some of the fiscal impulse that we see in Washington, D.C.? How fraught does this become as, with inequality as a focus for the Federal Reserve, for central banks at a time when that really is the purview of fiscal policy and not monetary policy? There are some things indeed that fiscal policy is just much better place to address. And again, issues of inequality is a great example of that. Now, what we, when we look at which countries are able to do large-scale asset purchases, it, it is countries that have built up very credible central banks, very transparent central banks with good rules-based policy making. So we have to keep that in mind. I mean, the exception doesn't make the rule. You have to maintain your reputation for keeping your eye on inflation and inflation expectations. And if you do that in good times, and then when you have hit by a crisis, you can do exceptional measures. Well, so, you know, we are living in times of low interest rates, and I suspect that will be the case going forward for many years. So this is a challenge that both fiscal and monetary policy has to deal with. And I would bring in there what's happening in financial markets. Because yeah. what we are seeing, of course, is very high valuations and frankly, complacency in financial markets. So there's very little room for surprises at this time. And this is exactly going to be the challenge, which is what we will see in Jackson, which is how do you communicate yeah. to be very clear about when you're going to move without creating uh, tantrums. Gita, there's also the flip side of this, that easy monetary conditions can plug a hole and actually take the pressure off fiscal policymakers from actually putting through some of the policies necessary to bridge some of the issues in society that Fed policy is increasingly becoming aware of. How do you sort of view that, the idea that when the Fed creates this calm, creates this stasis in markets, it can make people, at least in Washington, D.C., feel like there isn't as much of a problem? I mean, that exactly was the problem before this crisis, right? I mean, the, everything was left to monetary policy and fiscal policy wasn't doing anything. <clears throat> this time around, at least in the advanced economies, we have seen the recognition that monetary policy cannot do it all. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the one of the messages I will make is to make sure this continues and this is not a one-off, uh, you know, intervention that happened with fiscal policy, that this is durable and this continues because monetary policy cannot solve right. The kinds of problems you're talking about. Gita, one final question. I'm going to get you in trouble here. My, my apologies up front as well. We have had a wonderful set of Federal Reserve chairmen, including a guy named Bernanke, who I think you have a nodding acquaintance with. We've got Clarida of Columbia holding Ford on monetary theory and others. Talk to me about the reappointment of a non-PhD economist as chairman of the Fed. Do you care that Jerome Powell isn't a, a PhD economist? I think Chair Powell has been doing a, a great job in very difficult times. And no, I don't care whether he has a PhD or not. Mm. I think it's important to uh, get the right inputs from all kinds of people with all kinds of backgrounds. And, I, and he's been very clear about mm. that. And he's uh, been reacting very well to the kinds of advice he's been getting to. Dr. Gopanath, thank you so much for joining us uh, today. Gita Gopanath at the International uh, Monetary Fund.
right now, Lisa Bramwitz, Taylor Riggs, and I are honored to present to you Mark Kimmett, Brigadier General, retired Brigadier General, former Assistant Secretary of State for the Bush administration. General Kimmett, thank you so much. You came out of West Point, and you had to wander up to Camp Stanley in Korea, which wasn't a Hollywood TV set of MASH, but it was the real deal back in 1954 with real danger. We face real danger today in Kabul. How do we adapt and adjust on this Friday afternoon in Afghanistan? Well, I think there are two issues. One are the near-term issues and the long-term issues. The near-term issue, we tighten up the security, we push out the perimeter uh, so that the screening is done further out by fewer people. Uh, And candidly, we quit uh, asking permission of the Taliban to protect our troops. Uh, In the long term, we've got to understand the implications of the Kabul bombing and understand that that's a recruiting poster for every Uh, terrorist outfit in the world, and we better start getting ready to adapt uh, to this new pre-9-11 period that we're going to be going through. Lisa and Taylor have some important questions. I have to ask the difficult question, which alludes to Section 60 at Arlington Cemetery. How do we defend people like you against suicide attack? Well, the, the most important issue is how do we defend America against suicide attacks, and that is Uh, continue the policies that we've had, which is unflinching offensive operations. Fight them forward. Don't wait for them to come to us. Uh, General Kimmett, going forward, how concerned are you about the strategic importance of Afghanistan and the U.S. not having a footprint there at a time of increasing chaos? Yeah, I don't think we have a strategic interest in Afghanistan except to prevent it from becoming yet again another safe haven and sanctuary for terrorism as it had been pre-9-11. We're already seeing indications that it is that everybody's now coming back to this ungoverned space and they're suiting up, for lack of a better term. We need to not have the pre-9-11 view of just keeping an eye on things there. But as we see these terrorist training camps and we see these activities and hear these activities being planned, we've got to take action against these camps through airstrikes. And candidly, sometimes we're going to have to put our people on the ground to make sure that these people never have a chance to achieve a critical mass to attack us again. Because they look at what's happening in Kabul and they say, it's time to go after the Americans again. We've shown weakness and we can't show weakness going forward. General, is there political capital to do that at a time when most people in the United States were for withdrawing the troops and when, frankly, the allies of the United States perhaps don't trust the commitment to go in and to have their backs? Yeah, well, first of all, uh, I don't want to talk about political capital. The fact remains most Americans agreed with the withdrawal, uh, but they have not agreed with this debacle that we're seeing over the last couple of weeks. Uh, Those of us that have watched this for a long time, had policy positions focused on this, uh, believed that we should have done this at a longer pace during the winter, not the fighting season, and we should have left a commitment on the ground to continue to put some backbone into the Afghan army. The sloppy way we did it, uh, this shambolic way we did it, I think is directly demonstrated by what happened yesterday. And as of yesterday, I mean, what do you think of we're asking terrorists to 
support us in fighting the other terrorists. And General McKenzie yesterday said the Taliban was our front line of security. Somehow that suicide bomber got through to the U.S. forces as that second line of security. Unfortunately, right. the suicide been, went off, but thank God it didn't get on the airplane. Are we trusting the Taliban enough to stop those suicide bombers from getting through to American forces? Well, we shouldn't be trusting the Taliban at all. Since the Doha talks, they have demonstrated their unwillingness to abide by any agreement or commitment that they've made. Look, this isn't an evacuation. This is a hostage situation. We're not doing an evacuation. We're asking the Taliban to release these hostages. Uh, I, I don't know who's kidding who, but the Taliban can't be trusted, shouldn't be trusted. Right. And this and this uh, this um, uh, strategic communications uh, campaign they're right. running seems to have a lot of people fooled. General Kimmett, we have had a lot of academic experts on, and they really emphasize the tribal nature of society among Sunni and Shia. You are truly expert at tribal tensions from the Levant all the way over east into Afghanistan and indeed to Pakistan. Please advise us on the new relationship America will have with the fractured Pakistan. Well, first of all, this, this is less about the Sunni-Shia divide, uh, and it's more about tribal politics. And candidly, it's about Pakistan's uh, supposed national security concerns where they want to use Afghanistan as sort of a forward border between them and India. They don't want to be surrounded. Uh, candidly, uh, even though Pakistan is expressing grief and sorrow for what happened yesterday, we know the Pakistani fingerprints all over the support of the Taliban. And candidly, it could very well be uh, their support for ISIS-K. This is a country that harbored Osama bin Laden for years. Uh, and the relationship that we have with them is, is uh, somewhat questionable. But they have 40 nuclear weapons, and we certainly don't want to have their government overturned and taken over by a bunch of uh, tribal types inside of Pakistan. General Kibbett, before we let you go, you were talking about the messiness of the operation, and I want to talk about yep. some of the strategy. Uh, what would the rationale be for abandoning the Bagram Air Base and not just uh, and focusing resources on the Kabul airport? Yeah, look, I'm, I'm a little bit uh, uh, conflicted about that issue with Bagram Airport. Yeah, it's more secure, uh, but it's also much further out, and the Taliban would have set up checkpoints um, for anybody to get to, to the Bagram airfield. So yeah, I think it's a convenient uh, excuse, but Bagram, while it was easier to defend, it would have been harder for people to evacuate to because it's so far away from the city of Kabul. General Kimmett, what do you tell the man, the woman coming out of the class of 2021 mm -hmm. at West Point? Um, this is a long war. It's been going on since 9-11. And uh, it's not going to stop anytime soon. You need to look at what your predecessors from the last 20 years have done to defend this country. And you better ruck up and be ready to defend it as well. Mark Kimmett, we look forward to speaking to you again. Mark Kimmett, our retired Brigadier General, and of course working with the Bush administration as Assistant Deputy Assistant Director of Defense for the, the Middle East. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for Insight 
from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations, and subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.